Welcome to The Great Conversation, where ideas matter. They shape markets. They can change the world. We have with us today Mark Reed, the Director of Security from Seattle Pacific University, and Dan Rothrock, the President of Zenitel Americas. This was an unusual broadcast. I'm actually introducing this uh, after the fact. Uh, we were having a spontaneous call with Mark about his journey in bringing communications to his school. And it's a very intriguing story because it starts with Virginia Tech years ago and, uh, and also how much pressure was being put on university security leaders like Mark to bring police radios in because that was the answer. The answer was a police force and police radios. There was an impossible notion that we can't lock down a school. It's too expensive. It's too prohibitive. And Mark does an excellent job in framing that impossible picture back when Virginia Tech happened years ago. So listen in. It's an incredible journey about a very small university with a very big vision. Right. So in, in, uh, I'm sure for many universities, this issue became a hot topic right in the wake of the Virginia Tech situation. Uh, I had news crews show up here and stick cameras in my faces and ask me what I thought the answer was. And, you know, they had already made up their mind what the answer was before they got here. The answer was that we all needed police radios and that would solve all the problems. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were interested in what I had to say, polite, uh, and then they edited the, uh, you know, the interview to tell the story they wanted to tell that they'd already made up their mind to tell before. You know, it was very interesting. And so, of course, the University of Washington has police radios. They have a police department. They have the fifth largest police department in the state of Washington, and they have lots of state dollars. And uh, clearly, that's not an option for smaller private institutions it's not even legally uh, functional in the state of Washington. There are some states where, where a private organization can, um, can uh, get a commissioned police department through the state, but we're not, this is not one of those states. So the big thing that came up, out at the time is why can't universities lock down? And, and of course, Virginia Tech uh, had to say that was impossible. Uh, and other universities, large universities were saying that's impossible. It's prohibitively expensive, too complicated. We have so many buildings. Um, and I, you know, I already had a software and access control system that had this feature built in called lockdown. And I realized that, um, you know, that wasn't there by accident and uh, uh, that there ought to be some way for us to leverage that. We hadn't really seriously tried to build that out, but I realized that we could. And I began working with our integrator on how to design this. And we have, we have some unique uh, uh, capabilities on our campus. We have an infrastructure that probably most universities would be envious of. Uh, our IT department, um, you know, chair probably back in the 90s, realized that IT was going to increasingly be the future of how organizations operated. And so he wanted to lay out fiber optics and copper. You know, we had a world that seemed to be going back and forth between those two platforms. And so he made sure we had both to every building. If we're gonna be, you know, dig trenches in the ground, 
and lay in conduits. We'll lay in a lot of conduit and more fiber than we ever think we're going to need because the cost of, you know, the real cost is the labor and trenching, right? Uh, so we have all these resources in place and I begin to realize I can use that copper in a lot of different ways. They're not using it. And, uh, and you know, at first they, they uh, scratched their head, but I got them to go along with it. And, um, you know, I've been able to uh, use that to have a hard button lockdown interconnection between every building on campus. However, that's not the only way to do it. We, we have a software implementation uh, and, and our software is called a command set and we can activate a command set and it will through the network lock everything down. We've, we decided why not have redundancy because a network switch could fail, a piece of copper could be, you know, broken by a backhoe at any point. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we wanted to, we consider this a life safety a capability. Uh, so, so we started building it and, you know, it's not something you can build overnight. And, you know, I have to say Virginia Tech is building this. They have been building this for several years. They realized it was possible and that it was not inexpensive. Um, but I also have to say that we probably did it far less expensively than most organizations just by uh, taking advantage of the fact that we had this long term vision, the long view that this is where we wanted to be. We would take advantage of capital projects that were rolling out across time, you know, as we remodeled buildings, as we built new buildings, and as heavy repairs needed to be made, we would make sure that our investments were made according to a master plan. And we master planned it out so that we would have a combination of video technology, uh, access control with the lockdown feature. And really the lockdown feature was the major selling point for my administration. Uh, and then uh, of course we wanted uh, rapid mass communications and we needed a good platform to do that. We, we were not entirely happy with what we had at the time we had our own shooting event in 2014. Uh, however, we, we had a clear vision for what we wanted to do so clear and so well communicated to my team that even though we lacked the technology base that we were trying to build, three people were able to jump in and execute the, the emergency uh, activation that we had planned within the time frame that we had planned. So in other words, our goal was to be able to have a single person activate mass communications, put the campus in physical lockdown, notify our response team, and then get on the phone with 911 in less than a minute. And, uh, you know, that's incredibly complex. That's a lot of things that need to happen in a very short period of time. And, uh, and you know, we had a plan to do that. We, we literally have a big red button in the middle of our um, security operations center console. And when you hit that button, everything on campus locks. It's on, it's on the access control system. And that's uh, every building. Um, and then uh, we, we have been using uh, Stentaphone. And I have to tell you, there's a whole story about that. Um, we had been using a radio, uh, one of the emergency phone companies had a radio loudspeaker system. You enter a set of codes on a keypad 
and it sent an activation code out to turn the radios on and all these speakers, and then you could use a radio microphone and broadcast uh, to all of these speakers. And of course, we, we had so many problems with that technology. Lack of clarity was probably, if things were working, uh, but we really had trouble keeping it reliably working. And, uh, and it was unsupervised. Uh, it wasn't in, on any kind of two-way network. Uh, and I had been looking for something that would communicate with clarity for some time. And we had been trying, you know, a number of vendors out there, well-known vendors who I won't name, uh, but, but if I name them, they're the names in the industry. And I walked into one of uh, the great conversation events down there on the waterfront, Ron. And, um, and, you know, one of the great things is you bring in vendors and I happened to walk past Stenophone, who I'd not really even heard of, uh, as somebody was doing a demonstration and I thought, that is so clear. That is exactly what I've been looking for. And then, you know, so I started engaging them in the conversation what kind of audibility can I get out of this? And, um, you know, it was very good and very clear at the maximum speaker setting. And, you know, that was just exciting for me. It took me two years to sell that to my community because it was considerable investment, but nevertheless, we got it done. And, um, you know, we now have um, uh, over 200 of these devices spread across our campus. There's one in every residence hall floor. There are exterior speakers on rooftops. I have Stenophone, uh, uh, you know, the red button Stenophone uh, devices at most major doorways, entering buildings, places where we expect two-way interaction to happen. Um, you know, for example, all of our buildings are locked right now, and we had an agreement with King County Metro that, um, that one of our facilities could be a rest stop for their drivers and uh, we didn't want to issue credentials. So they, we literally, they come up to a Cinephone, we have a camera there, we see who they are, we buzz them in the door, it's that simple. And, um, uh, you know, the, the two-way communications has played an important role in several emergencies. Uh, we, we had a fire starting in a residence hall kitchen and one of the resident advisors just ran down the hallway and hit the button as the fire alarm activated, and there didn't need to be a discussion. We knew where the Cinephone device was. We knew the fire alarm was going off. We initiated our response, you know, faster than the normal alarm communication process allowed, and, and we were able to put that fire out. And, and by the way, our ability to do these things has allowed us to put out every fire in the last 30 years um, ourselves before the fire department can arrive. Seattle um, is, is a pretty good sized city. We have a very professional fire department and their stated goal somewhere on their website is that they can be anywhere in Seattle within eight minutes, which sounds pretty good unless you have a fire burning in your building and uh, you quickly realize that four minutes is a very long time in a fire. And it goes from, hey, anybody can put this out, training or not, to uh, only a professional can put this out to, it's not safe for anybody to, to, to deal with this other than the fire department and uh, you're going to take serious damage. So we, you know, our goal is to find things, get to them very quickly, communicate very well, very quickly to, you know, what, 
what emergency um, actions that people need to take to get out of the way to be safe and also to get our response team, which is highly trained in there to, you know, do the CPR that's needed to put the fire out um, or to deal with the, uh, the person who might be hostile, whatever is needed for that situation to make it safe. You know, our goal is to get there quickly with trained people uh, and, and to be able to communicate well while we're doing it. So um, we have these three layers of technology that uh, work together through our security operations center and, and very effectively. We just caught a guy breaking into a university vehicle um, on Sunday and, and my dispatcher was just making a routine visual sweep of the campus and sees a guy getting into uh, an institutional van. Uh, we know that nobody's operating these. And, uh, you know, you know he, he was awful surprised when we surrounded him. But, um, uh, you know, in, in Seattle right now, they're not arresting people for those kinds of crimes. They just issue a criminal citation and they don't want to take the risk of COVID exposure in the jails. But, um, you know, nevertheless, he's entered into the justice system that quickly. You know, um, fascinating background, Mark, fascinating background. Uh, one of the things that you triggered a memory on is with the Virginia Tech tragedy, uh, a couple of weeks after that, and you, you mentioned this, that they said, you know, we would like to have a lockdown system. We push a button and all these things happen at once. But the, the quote was uh, something to the effect of, but that system doesn't exist. Yes. And I was actually sitting in a restaurant with uh, two gentlemen that worked for Linnell at the time. And th they both nodded and they said, well, he's right. It doesn't exist. And, and I did the old classic, give me a napkin and I'll show you how this works. Mm -hmm. And we did a line diagram just the way you explained it of tying the audio, the video, the access control together, one triggering the other, the other triggering to the next one so that they all worked in unison off the touch of a single button. Mm -hmm. And all of those things started in activity. And, and to your point, and you mentioned this a couple times, speed is of the essence. Mm -hmm. In most cases, when we talk about these systems, the people are always thinking active shooter. Right. But your other point, um, it, we need the same system in place for a fire. What yeah. happens after that first minute is, is dramatic. And if, if people don't believe how fast a fire takes place, get on YouTube and take a look at how rapid that situation escalates and, and how quick it gets out of control. Um, your, your speed and your times that you're talking about are amazing. And they're, they're part of um, a thing you've talked about in your presentations before called diffusion. Mm -hmm. um, multiple technologies talking right. to each other and then making it go faster. You're not waiting to activate one, then another, then another. All these things are happening at once. Exactly. Uh, and so, you know, th there is what, I, what I've said in presentations before, there's a real-time imperative. Um, you have very little time to, uh, to make your actions effective, and, and the event that you're trying to manage is escalating very rapidly, and yet people that you're trying to communicate with 
are subject to a concept called milling where, you know, that they are just going, is this really happening right now? You know, I mean, I'm sure we've all been there where suddenly, you know, our situation changes and, and we are left in doubt. You know, I remember the day of 9-11 and I received a call from my office that morning. I was about to leave for work and they said, you need to get on the TV right now. And, you know, it was just stunning. And literally the entire world was probably sitting there with their mouths open saying, what does this mean? You know, and I realized the day that the, the Virginia Tech incident happened, that that was going to change uh, campus security for forever. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I began working in earnest at that point. Fortunately, I had a very supportive administration who also saw the implications of that and, um, and were very amenable to the planning that we did and, and were very supportive, so. So interesting, um, and I was going to mention this word because I learned it from you in, in your presentation, the, the milling. Mm -hmm. And when you explained the milling, how um, people receive a message, but it's almost like a fog. You can't really believe it's happening. And I, I sat there and I tried to think, when has that ever happened to me? And the exact analogy you just brought up is the one I, I fell back to was 9-11. Uh, I was actually mm -hmm. in Oslo in Norway Yes. Uh, when, when that happened. But I can remember that just like you're watching it, you're seeing it, but you're feeling it's not real, mm -hmm. which is the same problem we face on the campus when you're trying to get a message to somebody that there's fire, active shooter, or, or another problem, isn't it? It is. And, and so uh, increasingly, uh, I find one of my key roles is to try to have that imagination. I think a lot of times our failure to respond well is just due to a lack of imagination as to what risks we are likely to face. And, and so increasingly, I think that we need to broaden our risk evaluation beyond our own experiences. We're typically relatively small organizations and, uh, you know, I was, uh, I read an article recently that I just keyed in on, uh, University of Southern California had an, has an annual statistical death rate of about 15 students a year. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, that just, uh, I thought that was stunning. I, uh, have had one fatality in the last 30 years, and that was due to an act of gun violence. Um, and we have saved everyone else, whether they had a heart attack or whatever, you know, other circumstance. So I, I've often wondered how many of those things happen simply because organizations lack the resources to act fast enough to save those lives. You know, we respond to a seizure. Typically, we respond to about 150 medical emergencies a year. And in a typical seizure, you are told, just leave them alone. They'll come out of it on their own and everything will be okay. And our own experiences, there have been two occasions where we respond to the seizure and the person has fallen in such a way that they have an obstructed airway. Many famous celebrities have died uh, due to alcohol intoxication, but really what killed them is that in their state of stupor, they collapsed in a way that obscured their airway and they couldn't breathe. And so they died of asphyxiation and, uh, you know, in both those cases, my staffs did the first step in emergency first aid. You open the airway and the person immediately began to breathe. And, uh, you know, we saved a life just through that simple 
uh, method. But number one, being trained and being there fast uh, was the key step. Uh, but on three other occasions, we've had to use AEDs. And you know, students were in full cardiac arrest. These are 22-year-old women on average. Um, and uh, oddly, every one of them has, uh, that, uh, of our students in that situation, has been a young woman. I don't, I don't know if there's any statistical, uh, if that's just an anomaly or what. But uh, the only people that we had pass away on campus uh, have been older visitors who had unwitnessed cardiac arrests. Uh, we had one man that did that. We had another person who uh, had a blood clot from an injury that went into their lungs. Uh, you know, they died um, more than an hour after they were taken to Harborview, and it just wasn't the ability to save their life, apparently even at Harborview, uh, given the nature of their uh, condition. But most of the time, and with younger people, which we expect to have in the school university setting, uh, we've had great success. So. I, uh, you know, I'm very skeptical that as many people who die in our society have to die. <laughs> I think it's a lack of, you know, Seattle likes to tout their statistics that we save more people from cardiac arrest than, uh, you know, almost everywhere else in the world because we have the most CPR trained population, at least in the United States and, and for most of the world. So the odds of you having cardiac arrest and nobody knowing what to do is much smaller in Seattle. Yeah, two big things there, right? Even for cardiac arrest, the same as active shooter and fire. Speed to get to the person. Yes. The faster you get there, the faster you activate, the higher the percentage of saving the person mm -hmm. and training, right? Yes. Persistent training. Yes. So, Mark, you were also telling, I found this interesting, you started talking about uh, the Virginia Tech event. And then looking at your own situation and having a great, a, a great um, group behind you to progress forward. What, mm -hmm. Where did you start? Did you start with an assessment or did you start with an, a vision uh, assessment of what you had or was it a vision? Where, how did you get started? Well, it was a combination of recognizing that we had been um, making some investments. We had some idea that this could be a concern. Um, we had made some technology selections. Actually, at the time, we had not chosen a video platform. We had an older video platform, and it was right at that key moment. Virginia Tech happened at that key moment in video transition, uh, where hard drives suddenly became large enough to allow real digital data accumulation. Uh, you know, we we went from gigabytes to terabytes within, you know, 12 to 18 months. And, right. and that was like magic uh, in terms of what you could do with the technology. And as soon as that happened, I realized now was the time to go digital. And we began looking for a platform. Uh, our, um, one of our vendors walked in and said, I found the best thing since sliced bread. I looked at what, uh, you know, we, we use a Vigilon. And I, you know, I looked at the platform and certainly at the time I had to agree that I'd never seen anything that looked that good. And, um, and the other thing I really liked about it is uh, they had an encoder system better than everyone else's. And that would allow us to transition our analog technology to digital rather quickly. And, uh, and then uh, as uh, additional funding became available, we converted to digital cameras 
And, and then the, the next thing we did was we made strategic choices. What are, what are our risks? For example, we have a bank in the middle of the campus and we had had multiple bank robberies over the years. And we knew that, hey, if an armed robber shows up at the bank and then disappears into our community, we're gonna wanna lock down. So that's a high priority event for us. So uh, the first thing we did was, was put the best technology we had at that location. I, I have that location surrounded. You can't get within 100 yards of the place without being on high definition video. And, um, and so our average for frequency of bank robberies, you know, I don't really know what the current average is. It used to be at least one every five years. And you know, now we're uh, several years beyond that average uh, since our last robbery. But the last robber that came in wore a full suit from head to toe with gloves, a face mask. He tried everything he could to obscure who he was and that, you know, he had clearly was very aware that we had the technology there. Uh, so, so that played a key role. And I, I think that for most bank robbers, they look at that and say, hey, there are so many easier places to go. And that's really what I want them to do. <laughs> find I, you know, a different place, right? Find a different place because, uh, you know, uh, I, I have a community here and you're in the middle of it and do, do this, you know, you shouldn't do it anywhere, of course, but uh, don't do it here. And um, and then the next thing we were immediately aware of is that through studying people who committed these acts of violence, most of them wanted to outdo some famous event that happened before them. The guy at Virginia Tech referred back to Columbine. And people since Virginia Tech have referred to Cho at Virginia Tech. You know, his name is famous and all of this kind of stuff. And we realized that, that part of the thought process was going to be, how can I find the most people to victimize in one place in a short period of time? That, that was what our adversary was going to be looking for. So we applied that same rationale to our community and said, hey, the seating capacity in this building is a thousand. The seating capacity in this building is only 200. The seating capacity in this other building is 450. And we prioritized our, our rollout based on those numbers. The higher the number, the higher the priority because we were protecting more people in that space and time than, uh, you know, and, and we, had to apply, we had to apply some rubric to the process and that was the one we chose to, to try to save as many lives as possible. And, um, you know, we were not wrong about that rationale when we finally did have uh, our tragic active shooter event where one of our students was killed. It was at the building that had the highest daily seating average of any other building on campus. And um, so th that was an important rationale, I think. Uh, I think you're absolutely right and certainly shows itself also by the shooting in Las Vegas, right? Yes. Looking, looking for, for that. Big crowd, big numbers, yes. So you're sitting there, now you're doing an evaluation of equipment, but you have a wish list and then you have a budget. I did, yes. How do you go forward? Well, <clears throat> Uh, obviously, the number one thing was to make sure that we we had an end in mind, a goal that we were trying to achieve, that we had articulated that goal, that that goal included certain capabilities 
And so it was no longer about, um, hey, we have, you know, we have $100 in our pocket, so how are we going to do this? And in fact, at one point I was asked, you know, why can't I just fund all this right now? I could go out and get it. Now, I'm, I was working with the vice president for finance of the university, and, and he was a great leader, I, I, and I had deep respect for him. And, uh, you know, he saw this as something important. He says, why don't we just finance it all right now? And I wasn't sure if that was a rhetorical question or if he was seriously offering what I envisioned at the time to be over $2 million. But, uh, but I thought about it for a moment, and my response was, you know, that's a large investment. And if you buy all this equipment at one point in time, uh, 10 years down the road, which is the standard for electrical equipment in, in the industry, uh, you will see a massive failure rate and you'll need to refinance, you know, that amount of money. It's a large forklift. Most organizations are not comfortable with, uh, you know, finding that kind of funding uh, with, with um, let's say a threat pointed at them. And, uh, and it's better to manage it as, over time, have a continuous layer of investment. Now, you know, we haven't always maintained exactly the same level of investment. We're not building out anymore. We're now just maintaining. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not also making those maintenance choices with technology upgrades in mind. Our, our video's gone from just nice high definition, uh, two megapixel cameras, to video analytic cameras. And, you know, we now have cameras up to eight megapixels. Now the company we're, we're working with has 32 megapixel cameras. But, you know, I don't need to count the hairs on your nose from a hundred yards away. So we, we um, make those choices based on the space that we're, you know, we're trying to protect. And, and there's a formula that's used in, in video design based on pixels per square foot and, you know, similar concepts to that, so. How did you evaluate on the other side, you're talking about the video and, and that, what was the process as you were evaluating um, audio on the campus? Well, again, we wanted to make sure that uh, we, we had a specific goal. <laughs> we wanted people to know quickly within uh, less than a minute the nature of the emergency, what emergency actions we wanted them to take. And um, the other thing is we, we realized we would need multiple layers of technology. Uh, on a widespread basis, you saw in the entire educational in industry and, and elsewhere, the reliance on per people's personal cell phones as the device that you were going to connect with them on. Well, I can't imagine a device that is more faulty in that role now. At the time, you know, cell phones were a relatively new piece of technology. Everyone was excited when they got a message from someone. And now we're just inundated with messaging, communications. Um, you know, we're, we have notifications popping up on our phones all day long. And we're, we're looking to filter that input so we can stop and focus on anything like a converse, the conversation we're having now. And, um, and so, you know, I can't count on someone uh, getting a text message quickly, opening it up, reading it, and understanding that there's an emergency. I, I need other, other methodologies for communicating. So, yes, there's a text message that goes out. We also have this loudspeaker communication through our Stenophone network. 
um, we have digital display signs distributed throughout campus in every classroom in a lot of public uh, lobbies and places like that. And, um, and their audio ability is not very effective. They have a beeping sound they make uh, and then they begin scrolling a digital message uh, in an SMS format across their display. Uh, and they're pretty readable from, you know, for, you know, a room that will seat 100 people. Uh, everyone in the room can easily read it. Um, and so, you know, that's very effective. Um, but, um, you know, and, and of course we send out emails, but again, email is like not generally considered urgent communication for most people. So we really needed something that would, for most people, get their attention, realize that something abnormal was occurring and even if they don't understand what it says, if they just realize, hey, that's our emergency communication system, I better open my cell phone and see what the message really is. You know, we train our community, <clears throat> and this is the other thing, I've talked about training our, our response team. We train our community through a drill process. We, we have active drills. It involves our entire community. We shut down the university for 10, 15 minutes for a campus-wide drill twice a year. And so everyone is stopped at that moment and realizes they have to do something <clears throat> to respond to the drill. We have sent out communications in advance. Hey, this we're having a drill. This is what you need to do during the drill. This is our emergency procedure. And so that process of saying, you're going to have to do something, so you better stop and pay attention to what that is so you won't be the only one not doing the right thing you know it's like you've seen people dancing on stage and choreography and all of a sudden somebody goes left when everybody else went right right You're right nobody wants to be that person and so the drilling uh process kind of helps prod people to stop in their busy lives and i realize we all have busy lives uh to stop for a few moments and say what is it i'm supposed to do it's really not that complicated uh, they need to spend uh, less than five minutes a year really knowing what these emergency procedures are. And uh, so we practice both an evacuation and a shelter-in-place activity every year. And a lot of times we will uh, communicate out a theme. Last year we latched on to the state of Washington's Great Shakeout event. And, uh, you know, the earthquake uh, practice that was going on statewide and we initiated our own drill during that time and evacuated buildings and communicated a lot more about what to do in an earthquake. And, you know, with the idea that maybe people will be more attuned at that moment to hear the message and, and learn something. And you really need those teachable moments uh, and you have to create them sometimes. Yeah, so you go to your persistent training, right? And yes. explaining, explaining the why. Yes. Because if they understand the why, then they, they operate, um, they, they embrace it better, I would say. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and really, there's been a change in our community over since from, you know, when we first started this, uh, there was really a lot of doubt as to, uh, you know, and, and this is not unusual. Uh, this is discussed in a book called The Ostage Paradox, where uh, people have a lot of reasons for denying that this is going to be their problem. And that usually among the high on the list is this happens to somebody else, somewhere else. This won't happen here. We're special. 
And uh, so no one would dare do a thing like that. Here we, we know each other, we love each other. Um, you know, as the, as the mayor said, and I'm not trying to ridicule her, but there's this sense that if we know people, then love will break out. And um, we just don't live in that kind of world, unfortunately. Um, and, you know, fear is what uh, breaks out in moments of concern. And we've actually seen a lot of fear playing out along with the protests. I've seen moments where the protesters and the police stopped and hugged each other in the middle of, uh, you know, this really emotional experience they're having. And, uh, you know, it's because... Uh, there, there's just as much fear uh, there as, as anger. And, um, uh, you know, fear is something that we have to, you know, all these emotions that happen in an emergency is something you have to try to get through. And I think one of the keys there, besides clear communication, is having the message be as simple as possible. Uh, as, easy, as easy as it can be, right? As easy as it can be. This is what you need to do to be safe right now. And then you, you, along with easy, you talked about um, you're not, it's not a one and done when you first broadcast that first message, right? No, no. We repeat this uh, every few minutes and uh, we have, um, we, it, it's, it's scripted into our emergency response plan and we, we have an active communication team. Uh, most organizations have some professional communicators working for them either in a marketing department or uh, as uh, uh, principal information officers or some role that, of communications. And those are professionally trained communicators. And so we realized that, you know, in the initial stages of an emergency, our security operations center is going to be the first point of recognition. We'll, we'll launch an emergency communication, but you know, very quickly, we need to start managing that, the, the details of the emergency event, and we need to transition our communication to people who can step in and who are very good at filling in the details. Uh, you know, in, in the early moments of an emergency, this is key, you're not really going to know specifically what's going on. You may know the nature of the emergency, but you're not going to know the details. You can't tell a story that a guy got off a bus and began to, you know, pulled out a machete and began to attack people in a crowd or, you know, you, there's going to be a great deal of confusion in those early moments. And so instead, we, we focus on, we're having an emergency, uh, it's a threat of violence, you need to take these steps to be as safe as possible, and we will give you more communications as we actually know what's happening. And so our, we've trained our community to expect that. And we've developed a team of people who have practiced this. So they're expecting, our communications team is expecting to take over that role for us, probably at about 10 to 15 minutes, depending on the nature of the emergency. And, uh, and you know, as details begin to come in, as it be, starts to become clear what we're grappling with, um, you know, as the emergency unfolds. So that, that ties right back into something else that you've highlighted before, which is people empowerment. Yes, absolutely. People really are, are individually best suited to decide their own level of risk in a given situation based on the visual and auditory cues around them, maybe the smell of smoke or other bad things in the air, if it's an air hazard event, 
you know, they need to recognize whether or not the information applies to them at this moment. You know, one of the things I've started talking about in recent years that we had never considered before is just the risk that there could be a train wreck uh, on a large rail yard about three quarters of a mile from the university. Uh, it's one of the largest rail yards in the state of Washington. We, we have been here for 126 years, I think it is. And I don't know how long the rail yard's been there, but probably at least 100 years. And uh, I, as I look 100 years out to the future, I don't see them going anywhere and I don't see us going anywhere. So eventually statistical odds catch up with you and uh, so, and, and further, I've seen some studies of what happens. Uh, um, the city of Copenhagen, Denmark hired some faculty from Harvard to do a study. If we had a rail accident and there was a puncture of a rail car containing chlorine, just what would the effect be? And he determined that a one inch puncture in a chlorine tanker car would evacuate all its contents in about 20 minutes and that it would create a four mile downwind plume of fatality, um, you know, assuming there was just a moderate wind. Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's clearly uh, uh, intended to be a worst case scenario for planning purposes, but it's also uh, not unrealistic for us to think that some kind of noxious chemical could be involved in a rail accident near our campus. We, we had a ship fire about 20 years ago, um, only a quarter mile away from campus. Uh, it was a refrigeration ship, seafood processing, and the ammonia refrigerant uh, began leaking in a considerable amount. And we had a very irritating plume of ammonia gas drift through our campus, and we, you know, we had to shelter in place. There's no time for an evacuation. Uh, you would like to think that there is but imagine telling 5,000 people <laughs> that they have to evacuate and you have 10 minutes to get it done. I mean, the first issue is which way do we go? Uh, the, you know, if you know where to go and then how do we get there and uh, what are the transportation modalities that would make that happen? It's, it's just impossible. So what you have to hope for is that the source will be stopped by the first responders and that fresh air will be coming along behind it in the wind. And that if you can shelter in place in a building with a, you know, every building contains a certain amount of air, it will buy you the time for people to safely survive that event. That's really all you have to work with under a lot of circumstances. And, uh, but you have to plan for that. And again, communications, you have very little time. You know, the first thing I considered is if that happened, we probably wouldn't even know about it till 10 minutes after it happened. You know, why would anybody, you know, think the first thing they need to do is, is uh, call us, you know, we're three quarters of a mile away. And the first thing the fire department is going to be worrying about is do we have the resources to even deal with this? Uh, and, and so you realize the complexity of trying to manage something like that and just learning about it, I think is one of the key challenges that I see for our future is how can organizations like ours be aware of their threat environment outside of what we think of as our conventional boundaries. Uh, so I have a college campus. I have you know, a clearly defined set of boundaries. We actually have a, a major institution master plan. All hospitals and everyone else in Seattle has to do this with the city of Seattle. 
and we have clear boundaries and the city's very cognizant of what those are. The, we had a very large fire in November, uh, I think it was November 11th of 2018, uh, where an arsonist set a, um, a lumber yard on fire that um, was literally on the very edge of our campus. And um, we, we know this, uh, we know a great deal about it. We solved the crime because we have video cameras on our buildings that are closest to that location. And uh, there was nothing in that situation that would have called attention to us until the fire reached a certain size. But we now know, you know, looking back, that there was a 10 minute window there where we could have stopped that fire if we'd just known. Uh, and, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to create um, a larger expectation than, than um, most people probably think is reasonable, but I also think our technology could have saved us there uh, with, with the advent of analytic cameras, why can't the cameras tell you they see a fire? You know, a fire uh, generates a certain frequency of light. Uh, there's a certain level of flickering and amplitude um, uh, uh, kind of uh, light generation process that you see, um, you know, in the signature of that, the optical signature of that. And that can be detected. If we can detect some of the other things they're trying to detect, like, hey, I see this person and we know he's a bad guy because we can read his face. If the technology is that good for facial recognition, they can certainly detect the fire and say, you might want to look at this camera right now and see if that's something you're concerned about. Um, and that's really all uh, people uh, like us need to know. We, we don't expect the camera to be smarter than we are. We expect what we want is for it to call attention to matters that require evaluation. Yeah, I think we, we're looking for, uh, we're looking to a very bright future mm -hmm. when it comes to artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence and the things that those devices can do. Yes. Whether it's an intelligent camera triggered by analytics or whether it's an intelligent audio system and the intelligence is given to it because you become interoperable. You've talked, mm -hmm. you, you've used the word diffusion. We're yeah. talking to many platforms and we typically use the word about interoperability and mm -hmm. how that ties in. I, I think one of the other great things that you mentioned today, Mark, is that you, you talked about imagination and expanding your boundaries to know yeah. and think about what your challenges are, are, are going to be coming. Uh, you, you've highlighted a couple things statistically. It, you know, eventually this will happen in the uh, hitting the ostrich complex, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Thinking it's not going to happen, but we really have to think it is going to happen. And, and yeah. how do I, hopefully, how do I mitigate it before it even takes place? Mm -hmm. Or how do I cut it as short as possible so that I can have a positive, a positive outcome? Right. I, I, there's almost nothing that I anymore after my, uh, I've been doing this for nearly 40 years. And, um, you know, every time I think I've seen everything, um, I, I am reminded by the next event that happens that there is many more, you know, there are many more things that could happen. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, there's, there's a, an expert on risk management nationally, internationally recognized named Gordon Graham. And one of the thing he thinks he says to do is go to your industry insurance base and ask them what kind of claims 
are being seen for your industry. You get bigger than your own personal experience because if you're a relatively small organization, I mean, we're a 3,500 student university. We have um, about 40 acres. There are a lot of universities that are a lot larger than us. And, uh, and there are a lot of universities in our size range, but what is the experience of the group? <laughs> We've, we're, we might have a chance at understanding what our risks are if we cast a bigger net like that. Uh, we're probably not going to understand what our risks are based on our own experience. Um, just the, the statistics won't help us out there. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So uh, I'm, I'm interested, Mark, there's going to be a lot of people who quite frankly haven't um, invested in audio like you have. They still rely on access video intrusion and so forth. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you would be prepared for this, but if I asked you, if one of your peers asked you today, what's the best way to evaluate these new IP audio stations that are starting to promulgate the industry? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would your suggestion be on the scorecard, if you will, the evaluation scorecard you would use to determine uh, what you would implement? Well, uh, first of all, I, I look at the infrastructure that has to go behind them. Is it something that's buildable, maintainable, um, and uh, you know, is is the device able to stand up to the environment that we're going to put it in? Uh, secondly, I put these devices side by side. I mean, everyone says they can do outdoor audio, but I had all these vendors bring their their platform in, set it up for themselves, and demonstrate to us in an environment where we could test at a variety of distances up to 150 to 200 yards away are we able to understand the message being delivered through audio or does it begin to sound like the famous fast food restaurant drive up speaker where you can't really tell what they're saying? I mean, uh, we've all seen, it, it, you know, it's been a comedic ploy sometimes that uh, the audio is just not good in those situations. So uh, clearly we, we want that to be clear audio. Um, uh, as I said before, I was very impressed with Cinephone and the quality of the digital audio coming out of their speakers. The turbine speaker design, uh, I have to say, really works. I haven't seen uh, anyone other than there is a fire alarm company that, uh, that's delivering clear audio um, in fire uh, voice evacuation speakers now. Um, I haven't compared the two side by side. I've just said that's clear audio, you know, and... Um, uh, but we, we're not likely to install a lot of that. It doesn't, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of space that where fire code comes in and says, oh, you need voice evacuation. Um, and, and then there's the other concern I have that uh, as good as it sounds up front, when you start putting things in a UL listed package, then the flexibility of that technology goes way down. The, the, the companies that have to roll out a fire alarm system through the UL testing process really can't afford to innovate uh, as rapidly as companies that aren't trying to shoehorn themselves through that process. The cost is just uh, enormous for them 
And to recoup that investment, they, they need to have that technology stay stable for a considerable period of time. Uh, and, and so, you know, the, the real cutting edge of technology should be free. <laughs> and uh, I think industries should have to compete with each other in the marketplace. Uh, but I also think that, um, you know, people in my role need a greater awareness of what is possible, uh, what is achievable, so that our, you know, we're raising our standards up more quickly. If we're asking for it, we're, you know, asking for good stuff, we're likely to get good stuff. But, uh, you know, in a recent conversation uh, uh, with a video um, design company, the question was just how many people are asking for this fire detection technology? Well, they, they were aware that the power industry was very interested in it. They have a lot of outdoor equipment, you know, switch yards, um, transformer environments, lots of things where uh, they have an enormous investment there. But, you know, the company uh, looking at this still wasn't sure the investment that they would have to make to deliver the product would match up in the marketplace with the demand. So, um, you know, I, and then the other thing that I've started seeing creeping in on this analytics thing, uh, there, there are the new legal restrictions. The government, uh, and, and there are a lot of people who are distrustful about AI and what AI will do to them and how AI will be used against them. And, and for good reason. I mean, we see in there's certain other company, countries where AI is being deployed against <clears throat> billions of people in a way that um, you know, extends the reach of control on their lives to a very intrusive level. And I think people are afraid of that. Um, and uh, you know, we see that with uh, uh, facial recognition. There's, the Washington State has one of the most restrictive laws. It, stills allow, it still allows the use of facial recognition. Washington State has regulated audio recording for a long time. You know, it's two-party consent. And if we, if we had not had this process on this recorded event that we're having right here that said, you know, I consent to being recorded, it might not be a legal recording. But, you know, in fact, I did consent. We all consented, and so it's legal. Uh, but I couldn't uh, get you on a phone call and say, hey, Ron, what do you think of this, and not tell you I'm recording it and get you to say something that you probably wouldn't say in an open mic environment if you knew, you know, I mean, um, we're, we all have various levels of discretion when we're being honest with each other without fear of repercussion. And we're also aware that we're in, in a very politically charged environment and we're very careful about what we say in that regard. Well, I wrote down three things because you started with a story that was absolutely emphasizing clarity, which you brought up, but you also emphasize interoperability. You had to make audio work within a business process. So yeah. you emphasize interoperability, and then, uh, and then what you keep emphasizing, especially on the video side, as well as the communication side, is a form of intelligence, and you brought up AI at the end. Do you see do you see um, uh, audio analytics in your future? Well, that's actually why a moment ago I brought up the concern about um, uh, audio recording in the state of Washington. Uh, if we were going to deploy audio analytics 
uh, where the audio system was acting as a passive sensor uh, to events going on. I have seen companies attempt, uh, in fact, they've designed these for the prison environment. When the stress levels go up in the prison environment, our system will detect that stress change in the voices and you will get an analytic alert that says, uh, hey, you should pay attention to whether or not a fight is about to break out. Uh, and, you know, obviously uh, very good intentions there, um, but you could see in the current environment right now, if the city of Seattle had a different approach to managing what's going on uh, with the conflict uh, and said, hey, we're gonna deploy audio analytics throughout the uh, protest area, you could see the reaction people would have immediately, you know, there's already distrust. The, yeah. the distrust level would go through the roof. And um, uh, so I think that's a challenge for audio analytics. I think that there are some potentially good roles. They will have to be controlled environments, uh, a prison environment, um, maybe a manufacturing environment where you could uh, say, hey, uh, as part of working here, for your safety, we are looking for events that might mean, um, for example, that you're alarmed about the fact that you just lost your hand in a machine and we want to be able to respond to you as quickly as possible. So we're gonna use audio analytics. In other words, you would have to lay this out. It would have to be a controlled community, controlled environment, not, op not a general public kind of situation on a ship, uh, maybe on an aircraft. Um, those kinds of controlled environments. I could see a role for the technology where again, you would lay a framework for that to be used. But even in the state of Washington, I can't use, let's say I have a known bank robber and I think that, you know, and he's only robbing US banks. We have a US bank on campus. He's only robbing US banks. So we know that eventually he's going to be here and I get his picture from the FBI and I scan it into my video analytics uh, technology, which I which I have some, and uh, but right now I haven't bought the facial recognition licenses just because of the legal concerns. They're still just shaking out. Uh, but let's say I did the state. The new law says that I can only hang on to that for 30 days unless I can articulate why the threat of this person lasted longer. You know, as the 30 days was about to expire he commits another robbery nearby. And so we would have to articulate why we extended that time frame. But eventually we can't indefinitely keep his picture in our system, you know, just because one time in his life he did something bad. That, that's prohibited by the law.